0: Hey, Trumpcast listeners, I got to introduce you to the brand new daily news podcast from Slate. It's called What Next? And it puts all the other daily news shows to shame. It drops every weekday evening just in time for your commute. And it covers everything from the crisis in Yemen to immigration and government corruption. Slate is piloting the show right now. So this is your opportunity to really help shape what will come next for What Next? Whether this show informs, inspires, or provokes you, send your thoughts about it to whatnext at slate.com. That's whatnext at slate.com. Thanks so much. Now here is What Next. At Merrill, it all starts with you. Whether it's a dedicated advisor, self-directed investing, or a Merrill Lynch professionally managed portfolio, Merrill provides advice and guidance to help you live the life you want. Visit ml.com slash you to get started. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is always the potential of losing money. Merrill Lynch and Merrill make available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, member SIPC, and a wholly-owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation. On his way out the door as Attorney General, it turns out Jeff Sessions had a surprise. He left behind this memo, and it's going to change the way the Department of Justice does business— But before I explain this memo, before I explain why it's so important, I need to give you a little history. We're going to go back to 1991, early March, Los Angeles.
1: Now the story that might never have surfaced if someone hadn't picked up his home video camera. We've all seen the pictures of Los Angeles police officers beating a man they had just pulled over. The city's police chief said today he will support criminal charges against some of the men.
0: Here's ABC's Gary Shepard. Before cell phone cameras and Facebook Live there was this shaky home video of Rodney King. The three police officers facing felony criminal charges were among a group of 15 who stopped a 25-year-old black man last Saturday night, then beat him, kicked him, and clubbed him, unaware that an amateur photographer was recording the incident on videotape. Some people have called this tape the first viral video. And almost immediately, there were calls for action against individual police officers and also against the entire LAPD. But there was this nagging question. Who polices the police?
1: In the wake of the Rodney King uh, beating in the video, um, I think there was a feeling, essentially sort of two feelings.
0: This is Ian McDougall. He writes for ProPublica.
1: One was, Although some of the officers ended up ultimately going to prison, it was it's very hard to prosecute people, uh, officers, for um, civil rights violations just because of the way the laws are structured. And the second thing was that I think uh, the Justice Department and, and advocates and Congress ultimately realized there really wasn't a way to address systemic problems when you don't just have a cop who's having a bad day or a cop who—a a bad cop, um, but you have— a particular kind of problem or set of problems throughout a police department. Um, There wasn't really a way for the feds to address that.
0: Ian says the Rodney King beating is this moment an idea starts to materialize. Give the Department of Justice oversight over police departments when something goes wrong. And the way the DOJ begins to do that is with something called a consent decree. It works like this. A civil rights violation gets reported at a local police department. The Department of Justice investigates, looks to see if there's a pattern of bad behavior. And if things don't change, the DOJ can give a federal judge the authority to intervene. That last part, that's a consent decree.
1: Yeah, part of it is some departments um, will be able to look at that and say, oh, well, since you've kind of been looking at this, we've, we've fixed things. And I think, I think in Austin, Texas, um, they investigated, but by the end of it, uh, went to the chief and said, look, you've, it looks like you've really fixed this. Um, we don't think we need anything.
0: But then sometimes they come in and they say, hey, yeah. we're going to have this judge oversee you.
1: Right, right.
0: When video surfaced of the shooting of Laquan McDonald in Chicago, there was a consent decree. When Freddie Gray died after a spinal injury in the back of a policeman in Baltimore, consent decree. When Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, consent decree again.
1: And that's, um, from the very beginning, been a point of contention, uh, partisan contention.
0: Jeff Sessions made it clear where he stood on this kind of oversight, even at his confirmation hearing.
2: I I think there's concern that good police officers and and, uh, good departments uh, can be uh, sued by the Department of Justice Mm -hmm. when you just have uh, individuals within a department who have done wrong, and those individuals need to be prosecuted.
0: And this is where today's news comes in. Because before he left his desk in Washington this week, Sessions quietly issued this memo. A memo that makes it really hard for any more consent decrees to move forward, at least under the current administration.
1: I was surprised. Um, I wasn't expecting it. Certainly didn't know it was coming. I'm not sure a lot of people in the Justice Department knew it was coming either.
0: I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Today... Ian McDougall is going to show us what happens when this kind of oversight vaporizes. He spent part of this spring in the small town of Ville Platte, Louisiana, a town that was investigated by the DOJ under President Obama. But under President Trump, it's still waiting for change to come. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh, a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. The other day I was sitting here at work and I got a text from my husband. It was my four-year-old making dinner because we'd just gotten the HelloFresh family box. Each box is made up of fresh, responsibly obtained ingredients from carefully selected farms and high-rated trusted sources. And it's easy enough that, yeah, my kids could help make dinner. And it was good enough that I loved eating it. All the ingredients come in pre-measured, handy, labeled meal kits, so you know just what ingredients go with which recipe. The box was delivered right to my door in a recyclable, insulated package. And it made cooking fun, so I could spend less time planning meals and grocery shopping and more time hanging out with my kids. With HelloFresh, you can get delicious, filling meals delivered right to your door every week for less than $10 per serving, and free shipping. That meal my kids cooked for me, it was enough that I had leftovers the next day for lunch. Here's something else that's great. Listeners to this podcast get a special discount at HelloFresh. That's right. Here's how you get it. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes— Go to HelloFresh.com slash WhatNext60 and enter WhatNext60. That's HelloFresh.com slash WhatNext60 and promo code WhatNext60 for $20 off your first three boxes. At Merrill, it all starts with you the you who's expecting a new edition, the you who's building a new edition. As your needs evolve, Merrill provides advice and guidance that evolves with you. They help you build a personalized financial strategy that starts with what matters most to you and with the right balance of straightforward tools and access to professionals when you need them. Whether you prefer working with a dedicated advisor, self-directed investing, or a Merrill Lynch professionally managed portfolio, Merrill provides advice and guidance to help you live the life you want. Learn more at ml.com slash you. Investing in securities involves risks. Investments are not FDIC-insured, are not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value. Merrill Lynch & Merrill make available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, member SIPC, and a wholly-owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation. I wanted Ian McDougall to help me figure out how this new memo is going to impact police investigations around the country, because he's been reporting on consent decrees for months. He'd focused on Veal Plot, a little town in Louisiana, because the case there seemed to be hanging in the balance. He thought what happened here might tell him a lot about how the DOJ would approach civil rights violations under President Trump and under Attorney General Sessions. I asked Ian to start us off by taking me into Veal Plot.
1: It's it's a sort of unusual, uh, you know, I think of Cajun Louisiana, I think of cane fields and sort of like water everywhere and, you know, the, the petrochemical stuff that's all over you know, there, the oil stuff. But this is a bit further north and it actually sort of, the land flattens out, it looks like uh, Iowa, it's called the Cajun Prairie, except it's got like palmettos and, and uh, uh, you know,
0: crawfish ponds and things like that around. So what did police abuse look like in this town?
1: It takes many forms, but the one that um, the Justice Department had documented, they called investigative holds. Uh, Sometimes they called them 72-hour holds. And they're actually still, and in the past, were more common throughout the country, especially in the South. The idea was that you could just detain someone, arrest someone, bring them to a jail, and hold them there for up to three days, 72 hours.
0: And with, just because you want information from them, even, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, essentially for no reason at all, that, you know, besides that you want something from them. Um, and that could include wanting them to confess. And, you know, although they claim these lasted 72 hours, the Justice Department documented some that lasted, you know, a week, weeks. Um,
0: you tell this one story about a 12-year-old named Bobby Lewis. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about him?
1: Yeah. Bobby's story is sort of ref- its a reflection of kind of how— once the police department was called out on this, essentially, or a more generous take would be we're informed that they were wrong about the law. They started finding workarounds, and Bobby's story is an example of one of them. He uh, was a 12-year-old kid, um, well, now a little bit older, but middle school student. He and some of his friends were, um, you know, doing what kids do, cutting school, <laughs> and uh, they were caught in the rain. It was December. It's not super cold in Louisiana then, but it was, it was a chilly enough day, and so they took shelter into this carport. One of the kids, in the way that some kids do, got bored and picked up a rock and threw it through a, a window of an abandoned house. And there are really abandoned houses all over Ville Platte. It's really a, a quite economically depressed place. And some neighbors saw them and called the police. They all disperse and leave. And um, later in the day, um, this squad car pulls up next to Bobby as he's walking home, kind of near the police station, actually. And in it is a detective named uh, Jessica Laborde that everybody um, down there calls her Scrappy. She seemingly self-identifies that way. Um, she um, asked him what his name was. He said, I believe she told him to get in the car. Took him into the station um, uh, without a parent or a lawyer or anything. She and her partner started interrogating this kid in, um, in the police station uh, about not just the who threw the rock through the window, but also... Uh, asking him about uh, all kinds of like drug crimes and you know gun crimes and thefts and accusing him and his friends of being these fairly uh, seemingly hardened criminals and trying to get him to sign, write out and sign a, a confession and to implicate his friends in these.
0: And this is a workaround?
1: Well, a workaround in the sense that in before the Justice Department came in, they w- were taking kids and putting them in jail cells overnight for longer periods of time. What they started doing is— um, holding, bringing people in and holding them um, often in the break room where the uh, surveillance camera was broken. When you book someone into the jail, there are booking cards where they you know, fill out why they're being held and they would just write, you know, investigative hold or hold for a detective. There would be no reason to hold them.
0: Like it's a piece of luggage. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just well, very strange. Yeah, a
1: good, it's a good comparison. But so they, they that's why they stopped holding them overnight in the jail and they would detain them in the break room. Sometimes they put them in a cell for a little bit. You could lead them from the break room um, into where the cells are uh, without having a, a su- surveillance camera catch you. So, uh, But of that, because of that, they would never have to produce um, paperwork. And people also wouldn't necessarily realize what was going on was illegal because they they had heard maybe about people being put in cells, and that's what the Justice Department was looking at. Um, And you know, being held in a break room didn't necessarily feel the same way.
0: Over the years, these kinds of violations had impacted the whole town. In fact, the DOJ first heard about the trouble in Ville Platt from an FBI agent. He was looking into a murder there, but he couldn't get witnesses to talk to him. They just didn't want to get thrown in jail. And like Ian said, these kinds of abuses kept happening, even as the Department of Justice was investigating. So in December 2016, weeks before President Obama was set to leave office, lawyers in the Civil Rights Division issued a scathing report on policing in Veal Plot. The next step would typically be negotiating one of these consent decrees, putting a judge in charge of reforming the police department. And in early March 2017, it seemed possible...
1: Uh, the lawyers uh, at the Civil Rights Division who were working on this kind of just continued as they normally would. So in, in March, they went down to Ville Platte um, and had a community meeting, talked about their findings, asked what they would like to see changed. They met with the uh, police and the sheriff's office, and uh, then they went back to Washington. Um, then from the perspective of Ville Platte, it was just a year of silence. Hmm. In Washington, um, they were continuing to work on it, but by that time— um, Sessions and his people had really sort of set up their shop in the Justice Department, and they'd put out this memo um, at the very end of March saying, we're going to reconsider all these consent decrees, and we want to review them all. And and, um.
0: and Jeff Sessions talked about consent decrees in his hearings in the Senate, right?
1: Yeah, he, and he'd made no secret about, even before then, he'd written things about consent decrees and about police, uh, federal police reform work that um, were, he made his position quite clear. He thought they were sort of bad for and demoralizing to law enforcement and that they got in the way of state's sovereignty. Um, And so people at DOJ kind of already knew that. But once they saw this memo, they realized he was going to really act on uh, those beliefs in a pretty serious way.
0: So there's this year of silence. What are activists on the ground thinking
1: well, there aren't many of them. There's really only one uh, that's really working still today named Arthur Sampson. He was still in touch here and there with some of the attorneys he would um, spoken to before. Um, you know, the, the career staff was still committed to the case, but there was now the complication of the you know, political appointees above them. But, you know, I think he was mostly just incredibly frustrated. So we continued to kind of keep them posted on what he was seeing, keep asking them about things. But, you know, he mostly was met with silence.
0: So Veilplatt is kind of in this holding pattern, just waiting. And here's the thing. Consent decrees aren't perfect, but they're the only tools the department has.
1: Uh, it's one of the big issues, and I think people who um, were advocates of it in the Obama administration, they, they all admit that um, you know there's a lot more research to be done on how effective these are and there's been some uh, that indicates that they make a difference. There's been some that suggests they may not make a huge difference um, in the long term to police practices. I think there's this growing scholarly consensus that they do have an effect. But as as one um, former DOJ official said to me, you know, you're not going to get an F department to become an A department or an A-plus department. But getting them to be a C-minus department is a pretty big deal if you were living with an F department before. Hmm. Um, so the answer is we, we don't know how effective— um, these are in what way, um, but there are suggestions that they they do make a difference.
0: Were the people in Ville hoping for a consent decree?
1: Oh yeah, they, I mean, they were they, they were expecting, you know, some really serious some really serious action from the government and uh, and when it didn't come, uh, they sort of asked themselves, well, why'd we stick our neck out and talk to you guys?
0: So eventually, when did the DOJ come to a decision? Would they decide?
1: Right after I was there, um, as it happens, they sort of reemerged um, and they they sent uh, an email to to the city saying, you know, we we would like to discuss a settlement agreement with you, um, which would n- they didn't quite explain this, but it wouldn't involve a judge. It was just essentially an agreement for that the city would do certain things. The Justice Department would kind of keep an eye on it, and if things went really bad, they could go to court, but it would be an extremely uh, onerous process that would take a long time. Um, And that was kind of it. Uh, So I think, you know, I I remember talking to the city attorney while I was waiting to see how this shook out. And he said—he wouldn't really tell me what was going on, but he kind of chuckled and said, like, I'd say we're very happy with what they're recommending. So there was, I think, a feeling there that they'd gotten off pretty easy.
0: So instead of a judge overseeing a years-long process Mm -hmm. of kind of reckoning in the police department, you kind of have like a conference call and a handshake?
1: Yeah, and and to be fair to the Justice Department, you know, they— The way under Obama they did a lot of these is through a monitor. So they'd have a local, often former police chief or something like that with a team who would be able to kind of really keep an eye on things, do ride-alongs, check in pretty often, hear what they're doing. And they they had done this in other cases before. They're not as egregious ones as this. It's just the Justice Department kind of keeping an eye So, But what you have is, you know, of the many lawyers over the years who worked on this, there's only two of them left. One's a supervisor. Um... And they've got to fly from Washington to, I guess, New Orleans. Uh, you know, it's not you can't exactly fly to Ville Platte. you got to drive, like, three hours to get there. Um, so it's not like you can kind of be there very often and keeping an eye on things. Um, and there's hmm. nobody else around there keeping an eye on things because there's not, you know, there's not like a local ACLU affiliate or anything like that. There's, like, Arthur Sampson, this one guy, and that's kind of it.
0: So technically the DOJ is in charge, but the DOJ... You said it's down to how many people in the office?
1: Well, the office itself is, yeah, a lot of people have left um, and they haven't replaced them. I think the lawyers, it's like close to a a quarter of the lawyers who were there at the end of the Obama administration uh, have left and they haven't been replaced, as I understand it.
0: So Vealplatt didn't get its consent decree. But what happened there, it might be the best case scenario moving forward. The memo Sessions issued last night, here's what it does. It says, in order to move forward with a consent decree, political appointees need to sign off on the agreement. Lawyers have to find evidence of violations that go beyond unconstitutional behavior. And deals have to have a sunset date rather than remaining in place until police show a judge they've improved. And that's not all. These consent decrees, they haven't just been used to fix police departments. They've been used to hold school districts and public housing authorities accountable too. Ian told me what happens next almost certainly depends on the incoming AG and how he or she sees this memo. After talking to people who worked in the civil rights division under Obama, Ian did hold out one small ray of hope.
1: Uh, the people who who really, uh, who are at the, the sort of top of the chain under the Obama administration really poured a lot into this, they say, look, we, we spent eight years laying out this process and improving it over the course of that time, in, in their view. And we laid out all these... Um, uh, all these findings and and started these processes. And the consent decrees can't go away without a judge saying it's okay. So they're going to keep moving along. How well they'll be enforced by DOJ or how much DOJ will push is a separate question. But um, And at the same time, these findings are out there. So someone can pick this body of literature essentially up down the line if, if there's an AG who's, again, interested in doing this work and can say – here's how it was done and here's how we can continue to do it um, and continue to, in their view, improve on the process. Um, So
0: maybe the consent decree is just... Going to sleep for a little bit.
1: <laughs> I think that's their optimistic take: is that we they they would say we did so much uh, and laid out so much publicly that it's all there for people to run with and to try to you know to do studies on, to, to study it to try to figure out if it worked. And they, many of these had these monitors reports that are in court dockets, publicly available, that sort of lay out the police department's progress. So there's a ton of data and information out there um, for people to study and to try to understand.
0: Ian, thank you so much for explaining this to me. Thank you. That's the show. What Next is a daily news show that Slate is trying out for a little bit. We're going to go away at the end of next week, but then we're going to come back in January. While we're on that hiatus, we're going to use all the feedback you've given us and make the show even better. But that means that you need to give us that feedback. You can do it a couple ways. Go on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. That also helps other people find us. Or you can just email us at whatnext at slate.com. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Our engineer is Terence Bernardo. Talk to you Monday.